0: Um, And so let me give you a couple of things before we dive into the text. I really want to highlight the reasons that I picked the book of John being the first book that Mercy Hill will go through. Um, First and foremost, uh, John is a gospel, um, meaning that um, its primary purpose is to display who Jesus is. And so we said in our very first service that our desire is to follow Jesus, meaning that we want to make him Lord God and King and that we want to faithfully follow him all our days. That means we submit to his, his authority, Um, But what I find more frequently than not is that we say we want to follow Jesus, but we do not know him. Uh, And that's a major issue. If we say we want to follow somebody and we don't know them at all, we we can say that we're following him all day. But until we actually know the one whom we follow, then we're simply running around and crafting for ourselves um, one who we want to follow. And you'll find that the one that you craft for yourself is always the direction that you would want to go anyway. Um, But when we look at the person of Jesus, we want to ask the question, if we're going to follow him, who is he? Um, Who is he? What has he done? How are we to respond? And that is ultimately what a gospel is meant to do. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic gospels. They are very, very tightly knit together. They're very, very parallel. There's some minor diversions in them, but ultimately they're very, very close together. And you'll notice that each and every author had an intended purpose. So I'm gonna go ahead and answer why we didn't pick Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Matthew, Mark, or Luke. First of all, Matthew um, is an incredible gospel, but it's written specifically to the Jewish people. You'll find as you read through the book of Matthew, very clearly, there's so many types and allusions back to the Old Testament. He wants them to see that Jesus is actually the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And so when you think about Matthew, as you read through it, you'll discover what this is, is a man who longs for his people to come to faith in Christ and particularly the Jews. Mark is a whirlwind because I'm convinced Mark is ultimately Peter's gospel. Mark traveled with Peter. Peter displayed and talked to the gospel about Mark, and Mark recorded it. And very clearly, you can see uh, Peter's personality coming. in it. Peter is straight to the point. He's making things clear. Here's the work of Christ. Here's what he's done. And then it talks about how we should respond. Um, Luke is the greatest historian of all time. Um, and actually, that's not even from a biblical basis. Many call Luke the greatest historian of all time. He was accurate. He made sure everything he said was true and factual. And so with that, Luke writes so that one may believe in particularly a guy named Theophilus. Many people debate whether this is a in particular man or if it's simply anyone who would come to faith in Christ. But he writes in a way that he, he just wants them to understand and know who Jesus actually was. And then John is very distinct. I mean, John almost takes this detour in the fact that he, there's, there's something that he's trying to get across. And I wanna give you a couple of things that John is trying to get across. So a gospel in and of itself must do three things to be considered a gospel. It must talk about what Jesus did. What was his work? Who was he? And I would submit to you that apart from the gospels, there would be no way for us to know that. And I wanna tell, really, I, the reason I point this out to you is because it, without these four books, We would only have hearsay we would only have what people have said about him what you have in the gospels are eyewitnesses to the person of Christ his entire life his death burial and resurrection so that they can accurately write and so that we seeing his work can believe in him and be saved and so that's the purpose that John is writing for he wants you to see what Jesus did who he was secondly he wants you to understand the things Jesus said and he records very very unique sayings of Christ we call them the i am statements we're going to go through through each and every one of those over the coming months, maybe years. Uh, but nonetheless, what I want us to understand is who, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? And John does this incredible thing where he walks through each and every one of these sayings of Christ and displays a great, uh, great truths about him in each and every one. Let me give you a couple of the I am statements to kind of give you an overview of the things that John taught about Jesus. So first and foremost, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Now, each and every one of these sayings are tied to a miracle, a work that he did. So John almost takes the basic understanding of the gospel, what Jesus did and what Jesus said, and then links them together. And so, for instance, when he says, I am the bread of life, this is immediately following him feeding the multitude. I mean, you can imagine when Jesus said, I am the bread of life after feeding 5,000 men with a couple of loaves of fish. I mean, with a couple of loaves of fish, that's a thing. A couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish. When he says, I am the bread of life, can you agree that perhaps that had a little bit of extra gravity to it? I've just watched him feed thousands of people with, with literal, almost, I mean, you can consider it nothing. I mean, it might as well be nothing. Or, for instance, when he says, I am the light of the world, this is after he heals a man who is blind. He makes these statements. He wants you to understand who Jesus is and his work. This is crucial and and John is is brilliant in the fact that he actually gives a purpose statement but I just want to read to you the rest of these uh, great signs and the I am statement because I want you to just kind of have a background because what I'm hoping that you'll do and I'm going to go ahead and say this to you. My hope is that as we are going through the book of John at Mercy Hill you will be doing that in your home as well. Um, one of the great joys of, um, of standing in the pulpit on a regular basis is hopefully what will happen is you at home will learn how to study the scriptures and that you will do it together. Um, and so I'm going to go ahead and throw out a couple of major challenges as we're going through the book of John. Um, first challenge, memorize it. And I know that you're thinking I'm crazy. It's a book Lawson, but I'm going to be honest. This is going to take me a long time to preach through you have like years probably to do this. And so I would encourage you um, as we're walking through the scriptures together. So for instance, next week, our verses will be uh, John chapter one, verses one through four. Four verses in a week. And I'm encouraging you to do this because I'm convinced that there's not a single thing more profitable for the saint than to memorize, to ingest, and to hold and meditate on the scriptures together. And so I would encourage you, I know, I know I'm throwing lofty things at you, but my prayer is that as you are going through the scriptures together, um, that, that you will find that, that Christ in your home will be exalted, that your lives will be changed, and you will be a more faithful followers of Christ because of it. There's not going to be a test though. So I'm not like... Weighing you down, but I, I want to throw that at you because I think that it will be so profitable for you. And so, let me give you a couple of the I am statements. There, there are seven. I am convinced that there are actually eight. So he says, "I am the bread of life," pointing to the fact that Jesus is the true source of our, of our being. He is the provider. He is the sustainer of the saint. He is the light of the world by which we are able to see and actually um, be nurtured. Uh, three, I am the door of the sheep. He is the only true entrance into the fold. This is crucial. We're going to look at that in just a moment. Fourth, I am the good shepherd. I love this passage. This is in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. And all of a sudden, we look at passages like Psalm 23. And all of a sudden, we see very clearly that passage is not just about some abstract thing where we're talking about, yes, God is the good shepherd, but it's pointing to a particular member of the Godhead, Christ, who actually is the good shepherd. He is the one who's able to care for us, who's able to make us lie down beside streams of water in a healthy pasture. He's, because of him, our cup overflows. We have peace and his rod and his staff comfort us that these are the things that John is trying to convey to the people who read. They want, John longs for them to understand who Jesus actually is. And I can imagine even the Jewish reader, as they look at this particular passage, they would instantly think to themselves, the good shepherd. Psalm twenty three. He is the good shepherd. This makes perfect sense. And so the prayer is that we begin to see these things. Second or fifthly, he is the resurrection and life. And friends, if he he is the exclusive resurrection and life. Apart from him, there is none. And John makes that abundantly clear. This is tied to the raising of Lazarus. Uh, and then we see he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Again, that exclusivity. And then the passage we read previously, uh, that he is the true vine. That if we abide in him, then we will bear much fruit. But apart from him, we can do nothing. This goes back to our value of faithful labor. We abide in Christ, we faithfully labor in Christ, and we trust that he will bear fruit from that labor. So those are the I am statements. Let me give you seven signs and then we're gonna get into the text. So the first one I would consider probably a very famous one is water into wine. At the wedding feast of Canaan, he turns water into wine, demonstrating his authority over created matter. It is his to do with as he so chooses. He heals the official son and then shortly after heals the invalid, that Jesus has absolute authority over the physical world, meaning that if someone is sick and dying, he has authority over it. It is not past him. It is not something that he cannot speak to or have a hand in. He is actually able to do that. He uh, turns, uh, he feeds the 5,000, the feeding of the multitude. He walks on water. He heals the man born blind. He raises Lazarus. And let me give you the eighth uh, I am and the eighth sign. Jesus makes a statement. He says, I am. These are called, it's, it's a go on me, is the same phrase that we find in Exodus chapter 3, where the burning bush says, I am that I am. One of the things that we must understand that John is doing as he writes these things is it is a absolute claim to deity for Christ. And we're going to deal with that next week, but let me make this abundantly clear. John puts a nail in the coffin that Jesus is not Christ, that Jesus is not God. There's no way to read through the gospel of John and come out on the other end thinking to yourself that Jesus is not God. He is, he makes these very clear statements to find that I am actually the I am. I am the eternal God, and we'll see that next week. But I just want to go ahead and give you a couple of themes. So first and foremost, we're going to look at the identity of Christ, who he actually is, and then we're going to look at how we are to respond to him and the things that he has said that we are to rest in and or obey. So let's look particularly at John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Um, this passage, and in any book that you find yourself in, you will, it's important that you understand the purpose of the author. So for instance, as you're reading the book of Philippians, Philippians is about going through strife and difficulty within the local church and how we can be united in that. Ultimately, Paul says, you must have your mind fixed on the mind of Christ that's been purchased for you. You think about him, you meditate on his person, and then there will actually be unity. Ephesians talks about the new community that we have in Christ. That if we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we've been made alive together with him, and then, then we've been brought into a new and better community. For us to understand the purpose of the book gives great light as we read it. For some reason, we've decided to skip this step almost every time we approach the scriptures. And so I would encourage you that if you have any type of study Bible, there's something in the front that will say the purpose of this book, date, and author. Don't skip those. They are helpful. They are crucial. Because if you do not understand the purpose in which, for which the author wrote, then you're going to miss the point. One of the greatest issues with the book of Romans is people don't understand the intent of the book of Romans. Romans, the entire book, is written and surrounded by how is it that I can possess the righteousness of God? The whole book is rooted in that. And the beauty of it is we have it very clearly stated in Romans chapter one, verse 16 and 17. It is the righteousness of God revealed from heaven. And so the basic idea is everything that comes after that is pointing to how we can possess that righteousness. In the exact same way, John is very kind and gives us his purpose statement. And I know that all of you probably remember or have at one point in your life written a paper. In that paper, you had to write a thesis statement. And at that moment, you probably stared at the screen for 45 minutes until the thesis statement finally came out because you needed to know what you were writing about. I remember um, in college, I could, st- I could stare at the screen forever just to write a thesis statement. But once, once the thesis statement's down, once what I'm writing about is clear, I'm able to then proceed. So in the exact same way, as you read something, it's a good idea to understand the intent of the author. So John, once again, is so kind and gives us his intent. Notice this, verse 30. Let's uh, stand for the reading of God's word, shall we? John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31 says this. Now Jesus did many many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. Lord, we're grateful that you inspired John to write a very clear statement on what the intent of this particular letter is. And Lord, as we come, would you allow this to sink into our hearts? Lord, may it be that we examine ourselves by this purpose, that we understand that apart from Christ, there is no life, but in him is life eternal. So, Father, we love you, we thank you for Christ and the gospel, and it is in his name and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let's look at John chapter 20, verse 30. Let's start there. First of all, John makes a note, a very important note. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. Now, this means that John has selected a few particular signs that they can fully understand that he's pointing. He is making an argument. Now, let me say this. John is the theologian in the gospels. You look at Matthew, you look at Mark, you look at Luke, and they're very clear. But John is the theologian. He's the one who really does dive in deep to understand the person of Christ and the work of Christ. He spends more time trying to understand that and unpack it. He pays more closer attention to the I am statements and those particular things so that we can understand who Jesus actually is. He's not just a historian writing. He is a theologian writing so that we can understand something. And there's great things that we understand from John. For instance, the concept that eternal life starts here on the earth originates from John. John chapter 17, when John writes the high priestly prayer where Jesus prays for the saints present and the ones to come, he prays and he says... Eternal life is knowing God and Christ. That true life is only found in him. The beauty of that is that that means that our life in Christ, our eternity starts now. It's not something that we look forward to, but we know that we possess it if we're in Christ today. John is the theologian of the group. And so he's chosen these particular signs to display certain things. So what are those things? Notice this this in verse 31. So everything that he's written is for a specific purpose, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe. I want to stop right there. Because we live in a world that is is this idea of easy believism. You can believe whatever you want and ultimately there is a pathway. um, They all end in the exact same places. That is absolute foolishness in really any standard of measurement. If you go left, when you walk out of this, when you walk out of drive out of this place and I go, right, we're going to end in different places. It is just true. For some reason we take spirituality and we say, well, it all has to end up in the same place because for some reason we're too timid to actually point out the fact that there is such thing as a law of contradictions. That these two things cannot be same. If I take this path and you take another, we're going to end in separate places. And so John writes this. He says, I want you to believe, but he writes specifically about what you were to believe in. And I want to point this out to you. You're going to talk to people in your community. You're going to talk to people within your family. And they're gonna, you're going to ask them about what they believe. They're going to give you, maybe, uh, maybe they're believers in Christ. They're going to answer wonderfully. And you're going to rejoice with them because they're in Christ. And others are going to say, yes, we believe in God. Now, let me make a, a definitive statement here. Belief in God, belief in Christ is not simply looking at him and saying, yeah, I, I believe that that happened. It's not the same thing. That's not what we see here. Belief in Christ is not saying, yes, I believe that the Bible is true. Belief in Christ is looking at him and saying, you are Lord. That means that when we look at him and we say, yes, we believe everything in the scripture is true, that ultimately that means it will alter and define our lives at the most macro and micro level. That in everything that we do, it is ultimately in a response to what he has already done. Belief is not this idea of simply knowing something to be true. It's not. It is acting upon it. It is understanding that he is Lord and you will gladly submit to his authority. Now, I have to make that distinction because, friends, the vast majority of people that you talk to, you'll ask them about their spiritual life. They'll tell you that you be- they believe the Bible. Uh, one, one gentleman in particular I talked to you recently, I, he, we talked. He said, yes, I'm a Christian. I said, great, well, what church do you go to? And he told me. Um, and I said, what's the pastor's name? And I know that, that's, a, that's a, it's a weird question to ask, but in all fairness, if you're regularly attending a church, you know your pastor's name, right? Um, and, and nothing, like, I, I, don't, I don't know, I don't know. And, and the issue is, it's because he wasn't going. And I know I'm not putting a huge weight on the fact that attending church, but it is. I, I said it before, I'll say it again, that you can find every good Christian on church in, sun, in church on Sunday morning. As a regular, as a general rule, You can. Because Christians long to be in fellowship with other believers. For us to say that we love Jesus and hate his body, that's foolishness. And so what we find is this idea of believing in Christ is trusting him and and, and trusting that he is Lord, that you will gladly submit to his authority. But notice this, John's intent is that you believe something in particularly. But these are written in verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And I want you to feel the weight behind this because, we, like I said, we come to the text so frequently and we remove a little bit of weight from it because we remove ourselves from the audience who first received it. When this was written, when they received this letter, they had heard about this man named Jesus. They had perhaps heard about his miracles. I mean, how could you not hear about a man walking on water? How could you not hear about a man who feeds 5,000 I mean, all these things are great signs and wonders. But to be real honest, these signs and wonders, um, not each and every one of them, but many of them had been done previously by a prophet or a a man of the great God. But so what is it that distinguishes him from the prophets? What is it that distinguishes him from each and every other individual who comes to present signs and wonders? What distinguishes him from Moses? I mean, Moses did incredible things, agreed? Yes, he did them uh, by the power of God. I mean, you're talking about a man who stood in front of a sea and stuck his staff out and all of a sudden it parted. I mean, that's an incredible feat. What separates Christ from Moses and these great men, these great prophets of old? It's who he was. It is ultimately rooted in his person. So as you look at this, that you may believe Jesus is the Christ. This is where the signs and the sayings must meet. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is saying, I am the one who has come down from heaven that you may actually feed and have eternal life. That when he says, I am the resurrection and life, he is distinguishing himself in the sense that when he looks at a dead man and says, come out, he comes. Lastly, when he says, I am, meaning I am the actual true God and he then raises from the dead all of a sudden everybody everybody begins to listen a little bit more clearly this guy has actually defeated death and so everything that he says then points me to the fact that he is different there is something unique about him his identity is separate from anything that we've ever seen before who is he and the jews would have already been looking he is the messiah He is the Christ of God, the one who has been foretold all the way back in Genesis chapter three. It's been made abundantly clear there would be one who would come that would rescue his people from their sin. And he does just that. And so as we look at this text and we look, John has an intention. He wants them to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the one who has come to rescue and redeem that which was lost. Secondly, that he is the son of God. Now, um, I've mentioned this word a couple of times, and I'm going to continue to mention it because we find it all throughout the book of John, um, which is monogenes, the unique one of God. He is not a son of God in the sense that he was a created being. Adam was a son in that way. But what Christ is, is the better Adam. He is the one who is actually of the same substance. He was of the same essence of the Father, and he came to reveal the Father to us. Apart from Christ coming, my friends, we would know nothing, half. I mean, you can't even begin to fathom the ignorance that we would have of God. Jesus came to exegete the Father, to make him known, to teach us about him. That as we look at Christ, ultimately what we're doing is we are looking at the Father. We understand each and everything that we know about the Father. We know it from the Son. That He is the true Son of God. And my friends, as we come to this book, I want to encourage you that as... and, And I would ask you to do this for me. As we walk through this book, listen critically. I really want you to listen critically because, friends, today there are so many who deny the deity of Christ. It is you know, at one point I thought that perhaps we were behind this, that that this was behind us, that this was not a debate to be had any longer. Surely this was put to bed. It's not. And it never will be. There will be men till the day that he returns that will deny his deity. And on that great day, they will take a knee before him. Every tongue will confess that he is the true God and king. But until that day, we must be ready to give a defense and, and, and I'm not saying that we stand before each and every one looking to have a debate. But friends, if you cannot say that Jesus is the true Son of God, that he is of the same essence, that he is a member of the Godhead, that he is co-equal, co-eternal, and co-powerful, then friends, we find ourselves at a loss. Because there are many that will die in their sin because they do not believe in the true Son of God. And, and, I, and I make that distinction not harshly I mean, I, because I, I see it. Many. And the reason we must understand the identity, the I am statements that John points out is because if we craft for ourselves a Christ who does not meet these standards, he is not the one who is able to save. He is not. You will have people knock on your doors that will come and bring to you a false gospel because it has a false Christ. We must be ready to give a defense for that. And I aim and I trust that over the coming months as we walk through this book, there's ample evidence of the deity of Christ that when we look at him, we trust that he is the true God, true man that he is able to save to the uttermost. Now let me give you a basic understanding of why it's so important that Christ is actually God. Friends, if he's not, salvation is actually not possible. So let me explain this really quickly in this way. First of all, Jesus must be truly man to rescue us from our sin. If he is not truly man, then he cannot take on the wrath of God for men he must be both the perfect son of man and the perfect son of God if he is simply some uh, a man who is not true God that he cannot endure the eternal wrath of God You see, it's so important that we understand that he actually is the I am because that statement makes reference to his self-sufficiency, that he is the eternal God. And if he is the eternal God, then he can bear our sin because what that sin deserves is an eternal amount of wrath. And apart from him being supreme, apart from him being higher than that eternal amount of wrath, he could not satisfy God's justice. He could not drink that cup in full. And so he had to be truly God. He had to be truly man so that he could take our sin and actually endure it. And so this is not a light issue to deal with. This is a crucial foundational issue and we must, must, must know it and not be afraid to look at someone with gentleness and say that Christ will not save. And I know that sounds so harsh, but I'd rather be harsh with them here because Either the church looks at them and tells them with love, you are wrong, and perhaps by God's grace, he will save them. Or they will stand before God on that great day, and they will point to a Christ that they have crafted, and he said, this one could not bear your sin. And he will say, away with me, away with you, you evildoer, I never knew you, because the Christ that he crafted was not able to bring them to the Father. You see, it's crucial that we understand who Jesus actually is and what he has done. And then next, it is very, very important that we understand how we are to respond. Now, you've heard me say many times that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, but do not be fooled, there is a response from man, that as God gives life to the human heart, there is a response. This response is as we look at in verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, This is that looking at the true son of God, placing absolute faith and trust in him, dependence on him. That way, the end result can be life in his name. Life. I mean, you look at John in general. As he writes, he's got a couple of themes that he mixes in. Love is one of them. Life is one of them. And light is one of them. As John writes, you see these things very clearly distinguished. Distinguished. My friends, I want you to understand a couple of things. First and foremost, that if you have not trusted Christ, you are not alive. You're not. Ephesians 2, we made reference to this last week, says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, that if anyone rejects the gospel, that if anyone turns away from Christ, there is no life in him at all. Ultimately, he uh, he is walking and living a life out here on the earth that is free from any spiritual life at all. He is actually dead in his trespasses and sins. Only Christ, the one we see in the book of John, is able to save and give them new life in it. Secondly, life for the saint. Because it's easy to look at this and say, well, of course, this is in regard to salvation. So that doesn't really actually apply to me here and now. Um, so, so why do we come? So, I mean, as, as a saint, for those of us who are in Christ, how, why do we come to the book of John? Why do we want to see exactly who he is? Why do we want to understand his work and how we should respond? Because friends, if you think that life that you have as you are justified is the fullness of the life in Christ, then you are just wrong. That following Jesus means a perpetual growing in life. That as we begin to see him, enjoy him and love him all the more, we enjoy a deeper and more intimate fellowship with him. And remember, true eternal life is knowing Christ. And the beauty of the gospel is that we are justified, yes, by faith and we come to a relationship with him. He gives us life, but he grows that life in us. That there can be something unique, something changed, something altered in us each and every day. We call it sanctification. And that by God's grace, what he is doing is what we call vivification of the Spirit. Giving life to the Spirit. That he is growing us in our life. A deep love and affection for what he has done for us and given us. And so we we come to the Scriptures first and foremost because we long to actually have life. And we gain it by knowing Christ more. The saint that looks at the Scriptures and says, I know this. That doesn't want to go back because perhaps they've glossed over it previously. That doesn't find themselves in the scriptures regularly. Ultimately is one that says, I'm really comfortable with this little bit of life you've given me. I don't want to grow in this. I don't want any more. And whenever we have those, whenever I think about the people who would say those things, my first question has to be, have you ever actually experienced this life? Because as you taste it and see that it is good, how do we not go back to it time and time and time again? The saint that has tasted the good salvation of God in Christ, the saint that has seen him and has beheld his glory, glories of the only son full of grace and truth, how is it that we can see him and not long for him more and more? And so one thing I would add in this, that if there is no longing for a deeper relationship and life in Christ, it very well may be that there is no life there at all. And and, and the reason I point this out to you is because first and foremost, I think it's crucial that we examine ourselves on a regular basis to check and see, is there a longing and affection in my heart to grow in what Christ has accomplished for me? Secondly, that as we look into other people's lives, do not be fooled by sayings that are, um, and, and I've heard this at college was where I heard this all the time. I would see someone who claimed to be in Christ living in a perpetual state of sin, not longing to enjoy the good things that God has purchased for them. And I would point out their sin to them and I would be met with this simple phrase, don't judge. Friends, can I just say something? You actually cannot judge. You don't have a gavel. You have no authority to cast judgment over an individual, but you do and are thereby required of those who claim to be in Christ to look at them and say, brother, sister, whatever. There's no life in you. Every fruit that you produce is dead. How can it be that you are resting in the true vine? Because the true vine, it means you will produce fruit. There will be something that proves the fact that you are in Christ. And so with that, I would encourage you, do not be swayed by that simple phrase, don't judge. You can't. But by God's grace, you can look into a brother and sister's life and say, my friend, I don't think there's life here. I would encourage you to repent and place your faith in the one who can give it. And secondly, that it might give you comfort. And this may be an odd one. That as you come to the Scriptures, there are two things that it does. It convicts and it comforts. This is the beauty of coming to the Scriptures. It's the beauty of the fact that it's so multifaceted that as you come, man, it can pierce you like a knife, that it can cut and, I, and it does. If you find yourself coming to the scriptures and it never seems to, to cut you, that it never seems to point out your sin, your faults, your failures, then, then perhaps we're reading it incorrectly. But one of the other things that you'll see is as we are convicted of our sin, there's also this sweet comfort. Because those who have believed in Christ, the Son of God, have life. And my encouragement to you this morning that as we walk through the book of John, that you would understand that if you be in Christ, you have a true vine to rest in. That the light of the world is the one who gladly shines in your life. That by God's grace, he feeds you because he is the bread of life. All of these miracles are meant to make a very clear indication that the I am statements are true. And my friends, if we rest in them, then we can look at these statements and we can say, he is my good shepherd. He's the one who watches over my soul and I can take comfort and rest in that. Yes, he does have a rod and a staff and he may break my leg so that I don't wonder. But by God's grace, he will be the one to comfort me as well. And so my prayer for us as we begin this journey of walking through the book of John, that we will see very clearly who Jesus actually is. That we might be people who gladly go and proclaim the good news that there is a good shepherd who longs to bring new sheep into the fold, that will rescue and redeem each and every one that, are, that is his. And that we might offer the bread of life that is those who are starving, they're dead in their trespasses and sins, they are spiritually bankrupt that we can offer them true nourishment in Christ and that they might feast and be found. And so my friends, as we go, my prayer is that we understand that by this Christ, we actually may have life. And if you be in Christ, do not doubt it for a moment. His arm is not too short to save. And if you are in him, then by God's grace, rest comfortably that you may actually produce fruit, that there is comfort and rest here. Lastly, As we go through this book together, my prayer is that we would see many trust the Good Shepherd. And I know that um, this is is the start, this is an introduction. We're going to be a little bit brief. But my prayer is that as we consider these things, that as we continue to taste the life that Christ has provided for us, that we cannot help but be loud about it, that we cannot be silent. If these things are true, if, he, if the only means of salvation is believing in the Son of God, in the Christ of God, then how can we be silent? How can we not go to each and every soul that we know that does not know and trust the good shepherd and long for them to come to faith? How can we be silent? He is the only one who is able to provide life. Do not be fooled. Do not think that he is going to simply, um, by his kindness, gloss over sin. He is faithful. He is faithful to save and he is faithful to judge. And we have a grand message to offer each and every soul that we can trust the Christ of God as displayed in the book of John.